Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner. I'm a programmer at TIFF now, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is Melanie Scrifano, an actor and occasional director whom you'll know as the lead in Winona Earp, or as Mrs. McMurray in Letterkenny, or from her appearances in Bad Blood, or Being Erica, or The Listener, or Surreal Estate, or the movies Ready or Not, Saw Six, or even A Sunday Kind of Love, where she played Death, more or less. It sure looks like she'll be returning as Captain Battelle on Star Trek Strange New Worlds when the second season of that show launches in June, and this week you can see her pursue Emily Hampshire, much to the dismay of Jonas Chernick, in Sean Garrity's comedy The End of Sex, in theaters across Canada this Friday, April 28th. It's really fun, and it's pretty smart about some stuff. You should check it out. Melanie picked Inglorious Bastards, Quentin Tarantino's World War II picture about, well, it's about a lot of things. There's this platoon of Jewish soldiers, under the command of Brad Pitt's Aldo Rain, charged with terrorizing Germany by taking out high-value Nazis in the most brutal fashion. There's SS Colonel Hans Landa, played by an Oscar-winning Christoph Waltz, who's got his own form of brutality going on. And then there's Melanie Laurence Shashan, who escapes Landa in the film's excruciating prologue to mount a revenge scheme that will bring all of these characters together, and a few more besides, for a truly spectacular finale. This is someone else's movie. I, I don't know why I picked the most controversial thing. I eh, I'm sure, you know, well, I guess maybe now it's controversial again, just because of Nazis. But um, like I had, I did the, I did the press day for it when, when the film opened in 2009. So they brought in Eli Roth and, and they brought in Tarantino and Eli gave me this great thing about we were talking about Sin City and Mickey Rourke has this line in Sin City about how what is it hitmen you know like you can beat up all you can beat them up all you want and you never feel bad mm-hmm. and so, so we were saying like that's this movie's aesthetic for for Nazis mm-hmm. and we got <laughs> we got an email uh from someone who was upset that Eli Roth and I two Jewish guys uh were talking about how nice it is to watch a movie where the Nazis get shot because hashtag not all Germans or something. And this was before hashtags, but that was his, his thrust was, you know, like it was incredibly disrespectful to the German descendants of, I guess the SS. I've heard before from uh, uh, there, there's a German person that I know that's like hashtag not all Germans. And I'm like, we're not, nobody said that we're talking about Nazis. And uh, yeah, it's, it's just, yeah. I don't get it. I mean, I do, I do get it, of course, because it's identity and it's who you think you are. And, and I'm assuming some no small level of shame. Yeah, of course. But oof, yeah, if you can't see the point of this movie is about the oppressed rising up and taking back power uh, and the fact that, you know, Tarantino's smart enough that he can also comment on a, a whole genre of war picture and, and, give them Brad Pitt as their leader. So it's, uh, it's kind of a, a, like a Gentile led Jewish commando mission. And it's just, it's all knotted up with what America was supposed to be. And and it's still weird and idiosyncratic and, and picky in that Tarantino way where his fetishes and his fascinations are always going to drive his storytelling. But yeah, coming out of it and thinking, oh, the Nazis didn't deserve that. That's a weird take. Oh, I didn't, I didn't know that was people's take. I, uh, yeah, that's, um, for me, it was, it was interesting to watch 
the way the, the bastards lost their humanity in order to fight people who have no humanity. Um, and that was the takeaway. And like, I, I didn't find it aspirational. I didn't, I, it didn't make me go like, that's how you deal with it. You know, yeah. it's a fantasy genre that you're meant to be like, oh, I, you know, we all have dreams of punching the person in the car who cut us off. We don't do it. It's like a stupid, it's a fantasy, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, so many Tarantino movies are revenge pictures for one reason or another. And he found a context, this and Kill Bill, um, which it turns out Kill Bill grew out of Bastards. There's this whole weird backstory to how the scripts evolved. And we, and we can get into it if, you, if you're curious, because I can tell by your face that it's... Um, but these are movies where he gives you complicated heroes you can root for and then make sure the villains are charismatic enough that we're kind of... We just want to spend a little more time with them. I mean, in, in Hans Landa, he... I don't know if Hans Landa is the best character he's ever created, but he's up in the top five for Tarantino. It's just Christoph Waltz is so good at being that character and almost to his subsequent detriment, right? Because people keep trying to cast him as that character. Yeah. And he doesn't have Tarantino. Like that's, the, that was like, it was the, the combustion of the two of them together that created that magic. And then people, you know, like you have to give space to that person to just be other things than you can't recreate that. Yeah. It's also that moment in Tarantino cinema where he is just about to start writing all the characters like himself. It, it happened. It happened in death proof where every single character is prone to monologuing and it's just the nature of that movie. And, and I'm sure his argument was that, you know, it's an exploitation movie produced for no money. So that's what they would have done in the sixties and seventies. They just, they can't do more than two car gags. So everybody has to talk. <laughs> yeah. But then they all started sounding like Tarantino and it comes up in the fast bender sequence and the, in the bar. Um, they're all just monologuers and it's fine because it's fun to listen to his dialogue and, and the, the story is always moving forward. But then after I saw the movie, I realized, oh yeah, Archie just lifts right out. He doesn't accomplish anything. He's just there to show us the ruthlessness and, and deviousness and, and smarts of Landa. Mm -hmm. um, but, Wait, Archie? Oh, the Michael Fassbender's character, the, um, the uh -huh. guy who, who gets killed in the restaurant because he orders drinks the European way. Yeah. Well, they all get killed in the restaurant. That's but, yeah. true. He brings it all down. That's fair. <laughs> a lot of people die in this movie. Yeah. Um, but in a fun, exhilarating, this is a movie kind of way, he, yeah, Tarantino's referencing Guns of Navarone, but he's also referencing uh, Sergio Castellito pictures, which were shot for absolutely no money in Spain with a couple of American actors. And you're supposed to just enjoy the, the lurid nature of it. And oh, so yeah, the script, the way the script evolved was apparently he started writing it in the late nineties. And the way he explained it was he got to in his head. He, it was the Shoshana story. It was all about her character. And she had the death list that ends up being the bride's gimmick in Kill Bill. She was the one keeping a list of the people she was going to murder who were responsible for the death of her family. And then he got stalled out on bastards because there were too many moving parts too many characters, too many stories. And I think at the time, because he was only doing ensemble pieces, but they were much, much smaller. And then he made Jackie Brown, which was still pretty intimate. He needed to go off and make something as big as the Kill Bill movies with, you know, multiple locations, multiple sets, multiple timelines before he could figure out how to do this. 
and went off and did that and did Grindhouse and then came back. And by removing the the elements that he stole for Kill Bill, because Shoshana was basically the bride, um, he found a way to make it more about a cat and mouse game again. Only there's just a whole bunch of cats and a whole bunch of mice. So he can still be as expansive, but it always keeps coming back to Shoshana and Landa. Right. And the bastards are almost guest stars in their own movie that way. Yeah, for me, it was the, so I rewatched it and I, it, it never dawned on me. Like, first of all, the rewatch value of this movie, like you just pick up some, because he's so intricate and detail oriented that you just pick things up like, like in the um, chapter one. And I love that it's broken down into chapters because my mm-hmm. brain needs that. Um so chapter one, which is the farmhouse, this iconic scene, the the fountain pen that Landa puts together, takes apart, puts together. Uh, I guess the first time I watched it, I was just kind of absorbed by how hard it is as an actor to do a prop like that and say your lines. And I was like, when did he learn how to do that? Did they have rehearsals? Because that's actually really hard. And it was only this time that I noticed it, that I was like, he's putting together his rifle. Like that's his gun. And he's, he's, that's his weapon in this scene. And um, it like his list and, and, and I, I, I was mesmerized by it. And then, and then the scene in the tavern where, I mean, this whole movie, the characters are all pretending to be somebody they're not. And in the tavern, I, for the first time, realize that they're playing that game where they're supposed to guess each other's identities. And that's the whole premise of that. It just all clicked in that moment. I was like this, like each chapter could be its own standalone thing. And and the construction of the scenes is, nothing is wasted. It's all so dangerous and and or if you think it's just funny it's it's got a purpose it's it's so rich yeah there is no one scene that doesn't include some sort of power reversal that's the thing that i noticed that the person who starts on top will be on the bottom or the person who's winning will be defeated Shoshana escapes landa in the first scene even though you know, I think the bit is that he's completely aware of her presence. And so he's convinced he will win, but he misses one. Like he's just, he's, he's just being glorious enough to be careless. And again, just enough of a, of a, he's just arrogant enough to assume that he will catch her eventually and kind of does. I mean, in the end, they all do dispatch each other. Like some part of me wondered if in his psychology, the chase is more fun than the catch. Oh yeah. And, and so like so many times I was like, you know, and you could just do it now, but the, this process is more fun for you. And which was so fun for us. Like when, like when he orders milk for her in the restaurant and I peed a little because I was <laughs> like, Oh no. Oh no. I forgot that that happened. And it's such a fleeting moment but it's so significant, um, you know, yeah. Yeah, it's the luxury of writing too, I think, where, I, and I know the way Tarantino works is that he'll think of something and then backfill it. 
he'll just like, oh, this would be great. And then stop everything he's doing, go back, put it in and go forward again. What? Uh, okay, give me an example. That's he talked about it during Reservoir Dogs. Uh, but it's in the bit where Chris Penn is constantly defending Michael Madsen, like reflexively saying, no, no, he's a stone guy. He'd never do that. It came up late in the writing process. And he said that was the key to that character. Because the only thing you need to know about Eddie is how loyal he is. And so they decided that his loyalty to Madsen's character um, would be the thing that blinds him to the reality, which is that he is a psychopath, that Madsen has tortured and murdered somebody. We just saw it. But his Eddie's thing is that he's too, he's loyal to his friend. And in the flashback, we see him just goofing around with him and grabbing him and giving him a noogie and all of that stuff. And so he doesn't, he just can't perceive him, even though he knows he's a violent criminal because everybody in the movie is. That was the thing that keeps him from buying Orange's story. Even though it's true, most of it is true. Like Madsen is the one who goes off in the store, shoots everybody, brings the cops. He's the reason it all goes wrong. And then when Orange tries to go a little bit further, he said he was going to kill you is what he's like. He's, he said he was going to come and he was going to kill you and he's going to take the money. And he tells Eddie that that was going to happen. That is Eddie's breaking point because he refuses to believe that, that, that Malcolm Madsen's character would ever turn on him, which is true. He wouldn't have, but because that one little detail is the thing that trips him up, his loyalty also prevents him from understanding the level of violence that he's also, that has also happened. And he, that's the reason the whole, thing escalates at the very end is because Eddie loses his mind. And that was backfilled apparently because he realized that was the, that was the, the only way that he could get Eddie to go off, which was kind of astonishing really, because that it feels organic. It feels like it was there the whole time. Do you just remember all those details because you interviewed it? Because I, I, one of the reasons I picked this movie was because it's one of the only movies that I just remember certain things but most most movies i just completely forget but you're just going into detail about plot that i would never be able to oh that's the ocd <laughs> it's uh yeah I, I, I have ocd but i also have adhd so <laughs> uh, <laughs> it distracts me i am just lucky enough to have the kind of of ocd that if i like something i never stop thinking about it i think and that's what it is and i just can't i, I mean i mean i'm sure i've told this story before i when when i first saw Reservoir Dogs, it was on a VHS tape uh, that was provided to me two days ahead of the interviews because the screening times didn't line up. So so the distributor just gave me a tape during the film festival and said, here, go watch this. I watched it four times. And as a, as a young film nerd, you know, doing, I think this was like the third year I was covering it for, for the star to just have unlimited access because I was with the big newspaper to be able to go to see everything and talk to anybody. That was fantastic. It would be years before that happened again. You just called yourself a nerd. And I, I do believe I um, err on the side of nerd as well. I love rewatching. I would rather rewatch a movie 10 times than watch a new one. Because if I find one that I really like, I just want to keep watching it and discover the new elements like the, like the pen gun <laughs> or, you know, like all these things that I was too either distracted or I was, I was like, Ooh, pretty bird. And then I missed all this, the subtleties. Um, 
So I don't know. I, I, I just sometimes I haven't seen as many things as I'd like to have seen because I'm so busy rewatching the things I love. Like I like Spaceballs is a real problem, you know. Just whenever it's on. No, I I owned it. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah I owned that, and my stepdad uh, recorded Weird Science, um, and and anything that they recorded, it was I would just rewatch it, and they would they would just lose their minds because they just were like not again please but now it's like hey at least it's not paw patrol you're welcome mm. yeah once yeah, you have like kids, everything changes watching space balls and not paw patrol like what do they have to complain about you're developing an appreciation for old yiddish humor and puppets yeah, yeah exactly you're welcome yeah i think there i do have a theory about that i think there is not only is there a comfort in watching a movie you know you like mm-hmm. but the second time through with a movie we know we enjoy, our brains are even more predisposed because that little element of, oh no, this is they're not gonna stick the landing, the third act is gonna go wrong, it's gone, right? You know this experience is gonna be good. And so, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times I've watched, um, I don't know, let's say Die Hard, Back to the Future, Galaxy Quest. They're, they are comfort food in a way, but they're also such beautifully engineered films that I just never get tired of watching the pieces move. Mm-hmm. And Reservoir Dogs was like that too. I just, the first time I watched it, I was stunned. Um, like people don't understand where film noir was in, in 1992 before Tarantino. Um, there's this whole other line of it, the neo-noirs, things like One False Move and... Um, what was the other one? There's another really great example right around the same time. Miami Blues is another one where they're loquacious, they're dialogue driven, they're character driven, but they don't have the electricity that Tarantino brought. And once everyone started emulating him, all the other films started to look a little stuffy because they were just more static and not in a negative way. It's just the way they worked. Last Seduction, that's another one, the Linda Fiorentino film, which has been almost completely forgotten now. It's just resurfaced, I think, on the Criterion channel. People are, I'm watching people discover it on Twitter. It's like, yeah, I know. <laughs> it was great in 1990. It's still great. Did, did you just use the word loquacious because that's part of your vocabulary or because it was in this movie? And there's a whole... It is. That's yeah. right. No, it is yeah. part of my vocabulary. I grew up on comics in the 70s and, you know, overwritten Marvel comics and DC comics. I, the word loquacious? Oh. It was in there, yeah. Oh. Also lugubrious, which is the negative connotation of loquacious. I'm, again, big nerd. So are you loquacious or lugubrious? I usually aim for the first, but I tr- I, I'm sure I've been the second. The second. <laughs> There's a drift. Yeah, um, but yeah, uh, I had forgotten. That's right. There is a whole loquacious thing. Yeah. He calls him out on it. I can't remember now. I just watched it. And it, well, I mean, it's, I think it's also Tarantino's autocriticism, right? Like people mm. at that point were saying that he was an overwriter and he is, but more often than not, I think he makes it a strength. Here's my question. Okay. Yeah. So he, but that's his style. And if we don't like it, we don't have to watch. So I'm not sure what the point of those types of criticisms are. Maybe I'm just simple, but I'm like, listen, if you don't like 
dick jokes, don't follow me on Instagram. Like that's kind of how that works. And so if, if you don't like the chatty style, don't watch Dawson's Creek. Don't watch a, you know, I like, it's just part of the, the art form. If you, if you know, like if you don't like chiaroscuro, don't look at that painting. Like it's, it's just such a strange, it just feels like people want to, find things to nitpick about at a certain point. And it's like, well, you, you know what movie you're watching, right? Like, yeah, he's, he's a chatterbox. That's his thing. Lean yeah. into it. I think for me, the problem comes when all the characters start just losing their individualism. The, yeah. the speech patterns all become the same. And it happens around, it happens, it starts to happen in, in Glorious Bastards, but it's still such a busy, um, active film where there's enough going on and it keeps cutting from from location to location and storyline to storyline that it's less of an issue. Uh, once Django comes along and you can sort of watch Jamie Foxx pushing back at it with his minimalism and refusing to do big long monologues, even though they're there, he just sort of talks around or through them while he's surrounded by other monologuers. Then it feels, that's interesting to me. That yeah. that's, that's, a, that's a great combination. And then it kind of, after that, I started to drift away, especially Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where, and we can talk about this in, in relation to Inglorious Bastards too, where his need to overwrite history and make things end the way he wants them to kind of cripples the idea of the movie he's making. Like, Inglorious Bastards is fine. You can kill Hitler if you're Quentin Tarantino, right? It's it's wish fulfillment. This whole thing is a fiction you can argue that there are fixed points in history that the audience expects. And and in, in Glorious Bastards, it's a great, weird electric shock to see that moment. But then you make Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and the whole film is about what a tragedy it is that we're going to lose Sharon Tate. Mm-hmm. I mean, the whole film is watching her as though it treats Margot Robbie as though she's a ghost already. She's sort of drifting along in her life and watching herself on screen. And it's this strange, mournful thing. And it, I am in my bones. I am convinced. And we did an episode with John Ross Bowie about this, that he wrote it with her death in mind. Like it was about her neighbors. And then gradually he just couldn't let her go. And so he came up with an ending where she lives. But the problem is that that movie nullifies everything about the Manson family. They don't do anything. They just show up and get murdered. They haven't harmed anyone. And so our understanding of like, by the time you kill Hitler in Inglorious Bastards, he's Hitler. Right. All of it is underway. Everything has happened. And it's this great vicarious moment where, oh, no, no, we killed him too. If you don't have uh, the Manson family. to that, sorry to interrupt. No, no, please. That the, the, he also he comes to an end in real life anyway. So like the same thing happens just differently. And so the people who have control, like it's, it happens differently, but either way he's, he's dead. Yeah. So it's less of a, you know, he just dies in a way that you're like, yeah, instead of, ah, he just kind of fizzles away or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like giving the Jews the power to kill Hitler quite literally on screen is a, is a, big deal. Yes. Um, but with, with once upon a time in Hollywood, I think he, like, he just misses his own point by taking away the tragedy that defines the monsters. And instead it's just a bunch of hippies who show up and get brutally murdered because they bothered the wrong person. Yeah. Hmm. And not that I'm saying I wanted to watch Sharon Tate be murdered because she died horribly. And that is, that is the defining tragedy that the movie 
actively subverts, which is so weird. You spend two and a half hours watching this this apparently quite lovely person walk, you know, towards her own end. And then it turns out she was oblivious to all of it. it she this version of her where she survives and then she gets to go off and make movies with Leonardo DiCaprio. It's it's nice, but it just landed so strangely for me that it made me wonder at what point during the script process did he do that thing where he went back and changed everything in order to bring himself to this ending? Uh, I don't remember much about Once, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which says a lot. Like, I remember Inglorious Bastards. I remember vivid details. I don't really remember anything about Once Upon a Time. Um, I will say I had a hard time with that movie because I was in a docudrama about the Manson family. In the early days of my career, I played the cheerleader one, uh, one of, anyway, one of the, Leslie Van Houten, I played her. And um, so just automatically, I was like, nope, this, I, I can't see this uh, with any objectivity. So beyond the, the good points that you're bringing up, I just am too subjectively tainted. I get that. Yeah. I mean, the research for something like that would be absolutely horrifying, no matter which side you come down on, right? I mean, everybody has to empathize with the characters they play, but also just the act of seeing any court transcripts. Or, I mean, I was I was way too young to read Helter Skelter when it was published, but it was the paperback that everybody had. And so I was just walking around picking it up in my, I think my grandparents' house. Um, and it's just, I mean... That's the other problem too. Like the depravity of the Manson family is so specific to the late sixties and the death of the American dream and all the stuff that was happening around Vietnam and around drug culture and everything that it, you can't to actually try to put it into one movie is to be almost impossibly lurid and overwrought. You just, you need like a, a seven season series to show the slide to mm -hmm. where they started and how they ended and all of that stuff. And to turn it into a subplot of the story that Tarantino really wants to tell, which is just about how cool it must have been to be a TV actor in the sixties. Eh, it doesn't, yeah. yeah, didn't do it for me. Um, I don't know. I, I just, and also the monologuing, the fact that, and, and the Bruce Lee thing, all of it. I don't want to relitigate once upon a time in Hollywood. It's <laughs> unfair. We did a very long episode about it already. Okay. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I can see how that would be weird. I can see how it would be weird to have somebody else, doing something you've already done and then have that character almost not figure in the story at all. Yeah. Well, I, I also think there's something for actors that um, it feels very, everything feels very personal. Like um, it's hard for me to, yeah, watch anything with the Manson family because I was part of that. And I'm like, well, no, nothing else counts. Like, <laughs> you know, yep. even though it was like a long time ago and I was like a very new actor and, you just you just get very precious about stories you've told or characters you've played, and you just kind of um, it, it's it's like a it's like a an open kind of sore, and you just like don't touch it, don't touch it, just leave it. <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's no, it's your your version would be the definitive version, right? Because you were there. Yeah, yeah. It, even if it was complete BS, like uh, you know, um, although I thought it was a really good piece, but uh, <laughs> but but yeah, like it's still your baby. That's the other thing too, going on a tangent, but, um, but about kind of anything you work so hard on, I imagine it must be how 
I think anybody feels this way where you work so hard on something everybody does and you love it. And this has this magic when you're shooting it and then people watch it and they weren't there and they don't have the same feeling of magic. And then they just kind of are like, no, it's all right. And you're like, no, it wasn't. It was incredible. Um, I have a couple of those in my, on my uh, filmography that I'm like, that was an incredible movie. Even if nobody else knows. (laughs) Hey, it's Norm interrupting my own show to bring you up to speed on Shiny Things, my twice-weekly newsletter about physical media, culture, and the odd streaming project. Last week, I wrote about Warner's Blu-ray of Magic Mike's Last Dance and Shout Factory's 4K restoration of the forgotten horror drama The Haunting of Julia, as well as Via Vision's imprint box sets After Dark, Neo Noir Cinema Collection 2, and directed by Roland Jaffe. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at shiny-things.ghost.io or find a link at the Simcast Twitter account. Look, this is all I know. Come check it out. I get that feeling, too, about Tarantino's movies, because he does have that energy. I could see him ripping everybody up and getting them all just sort of stoked to shoot whatever scene it is. And then it turns out to be just one element of this massive machinery of story that he does. Like The Hateful Eight, which is like the most perverse thing he's ever done. It's a stage play on 70 millimeter. It's, you know, like just to do that at that scale is so weirdly joyful for him it must have been a blast but then you watch the film and it's this very sedate thriller where people can't do very much because of the limitations and the whole concept is just about people staring at each other trying to fit it's his version of the thing right like figuring out who the real mm-hmm. killer is and all um but with inglorious bastards everybody just gets to stomp around i mean there's this 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 physical pumping motion that every character has at one point or another even daniel Brühl gets it in the reenactments baller Oh my God. Yeah, where he is this character who is playing, he's a soldier playing a soldier. And the performance is so much fun because even though he's an absolute villain and a tool of the Nazi state, he gets into it. Like he is a character who has bought into his own legend in a way that Aldo hasn't, right? Because Pitt is playing the tiredness of this guy. He's been killing people and it's wearing down. And he still, he stalks around and he chomps on things and he just, like, Brad Pitt is having a hell of a time. Mm-hmm. Um, but the guy's tired and Landa should be tired, but he's excited. Like he's, he's evil because he's enjoying the killing, but he's also deliciously evil in a way that, you know, we get to enjoy because there's going to be a comeuppance mm. and the suffering yeah. that's inflicted, like the, the way the, 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 the way that righteousness makes you tired and evil inspires you is something that's really fascinating to me about this movie. I don't think he Tarantino does it in any other film, but the bad guys really enjoy being the bad guys here. And so as dehumanized as the, the, the uh, bastards are, they're still on the right side. Yeah. hundred percent. And you know, you just, you get to watch them do this mission over and over again. And it's always the same mission, go kill. Mm-hmm. And and the the lack of responsibility and the lack of the moral clarity combined with the lack of responsibility and oversight is something that they end up carrying, which I find really fascinating because it's it shouldn't work like that. Like all of the war movies that Tarantino is referencing are about duty and honor and sacrifice. And here it's just like, no, you know what? It's actually a great joy to kill bad people mm-hmm. in a war, like to have this excuse, to have the war to legitimize your action. 
and to know that you're right. And they're energized by it in like a, it's like a, they come a lot. It's like, it's like they were born for this moment of history and their characters are like driven by it. You know, as I was watching it, I weirdly was uh, drawing a lot of parallels to All Quiet on the Western Front. Mm-hmm. I can see that. But like in, in the most, uh, well, even to the tiredness, you know, like you see the, this young soldier at the beginning, he's got all the, he's like, this is, you know, he believes in the mission. And then a year later, you just, he's aged by a hundred years. And, um, but just that contrast in, in like being driven by your belief of doing what's right and how it energizes you and brings out his youth. And then, um, and then later's and, and, and Shoshana in this movie really has that, that age put on her of like the, the carrying the burden and she's not the one who's going around killing people. And then, oh yeah. And then when she does, she really does like find that same delicious joy that the others have. She finds it at the end while they've had it the whole time. Yeah. It's a movie about bloodlust as, as fuel. Mm-hmm. I, think. I, I wonder if, I mean, I'm sure he understands that on some level as a filmmaker, because, you know, it's, it's, it treats violence as sexy, not sexualized. That, that whole sequence with that scored to the David Bowie Cat People song, which shouldn't work, but really does. Um, which one? It's the, it's the music. It's putting out fire. It's the song that, that he plays towards oh, the end. Right, right, right. And it's the theme from Paul Schrader's Cat People. And it doesn't belong there. It has, the, it has a sinewy feline energy. I get that. And it's synth poppy in a way that Bowie could just sort of nail in his sleep. But it didn't work in Cat People because Cat People is so serious. Cat People is, I love Cat People, but that song doesn't belong in that movie. It was just added at the last minute because Universal wanted a single. And you can feel like so much of Tarantino's magpieisms. you can feel that he's been looking for a place to put this song that he loves, that he knows what he can do with it, but he couldn't figure it out until there is literally a fire to be put out. I mean, it's his way, but by the time you get there, it's the music, the song starts up and I was just like, oh, I know this song. And then it's like, ah, this belongs here. Like it's suddenly reclaimed from cat people, the movie into this new thing, this new purpose. And it's because of the excitement and the energy that's been pulling us along towards this horrifying ending where everyone, well, almost everyone dies, but all the people we've been rooting to survive and see their revenge, you know, executed and culminated. Shoshana doesn't get to enjoy any of it, mm-hmm. but her, Respecter does because we have that film print, which is also so silly, uh, removed from its context. You're right. it, you know, you see it in you see it in in gifts showing up, and everyone uses it wrong. It's always misused on social media because this is the death triumph. Like she is not there to see this. She is. Re- it's a suicide note. She recorded this knowing she probably wasn't going to make it. Right. And she still gets her vengeance anyway. And it's so stirring in the film. And I get everything that Tarantino loves, like the, the silver nitrate, the film stock, the burning, the sensation of it, the idea that she's literally bringing down the house on on, uh, on an auditorium full of the most evil people on the planet. There's no downside to this, except that her sacrifice is required. And he still makes it a triumph. Yeah, the, the, the love of film was such a, 
he, he put it anywhere he could like that line about in France and what in France, we respect our directors or whatever. Like she, she had that great line. Um, yeah. His love of film is all over this movie, which is another one of his fingerprints that I just love seeing. Like I love the, the detail of when she's splicing the film together. Um, you can't just, I mean, he, he must have such a deep knowledge of the technical stuff to be able to even the pen, like, how do you know how to do that? Like who, like he probably just is such a nerd, but that final scene, this is going to be such a, that was my least favorite chapter, not for any story reasons, but because anytime there's a lot of running and things catching fire and shooting, I tune right out. I don't care what movie it is. I, I cannot, I'm just like, okay, call me when we're back to the talky bit. So then like, I always zone back in when they're in the forest with Landa and they do the, the carving on his face. Mm-hmm. Then I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah, I know what we're talking about. I'm back. But for the rest, like I look at it and I'm like, wow, there's a lot of red and it's beautiful, but I am not fully paying attention. Is it the chaos? I mean, is it just, it, you, you disconnect from... Yeah, I disconnect from chaos. Yep, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. And again, not just this movie, any movie. I'm like, okay, all right, they're fighting. There's a lot of, uh, you know, sword play or whatever the thing is. <laughs> just like, okay, just I wrap it up, wrap it up. I know what this is. Actually, I really appreciated about the tavern scene, which was this long, luxurious soak in a tub of like people trying to figure each other out. And then the actual shooty bang bang was like two seconds. Mm-hmm. And that's so, that was so sexy because so many times filmmakers think they need to, or I don't know who it is, studios, somebody thinks that they need to like, it's all about the the fight and the shooting. And in this case, it was all about the buildup to it. The actual shooting, like it took, it was like, Three seconds. It was beautiful. It was yeah. all about the moments before and after that. And so I think it's the, because I know what that part is like, okay, they're going to shoot. Somebody's going to die. I get it. So I'm more interested in the, the tension leading up to it and then the fallout after it. Yeah. I had just seen Fassbender in, in, in shame in Steve McQueen's shame, like this huge breakout role where he played Bobby Sands a year earlier, it was a sensation at Cannes. I can only imagine what that audience would have made of Bastards, where he shows up and he's like, oh, I know this, he's great, he's fantastic. And he's just like, nope, two scenes. And <laughs> it's an excellent use of him because even though like my argument in a, on story terms is that he can't, he doesn't accomplish anything. Like we waste all that time with Mike Myers' cameo and all that. Like he that could lift right out and i get it tarantino loves it he's going to keep it and mike myers doing an english accent is mike myers favorite thing on earth so of course you know as much of that as you want he's shrek you like you want to obviously keep he's he's money he's money in the bank this guy uh but i also love the perversity of spending the midsection of the film on this wasted endeavor just to demonstrate that the nazis are good at this too right like that the 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 enemy they're not stooges. Mm-hmm. They are worthy of 
the attention of the of the West of the of the Allies that all the effort that's being put into this it's because there is a really horrible pervasive evil that has sunk into the land and they have to cleanse it. I mean, it, it, it's almost supernatural in a way, this sort of revenge story, because it is about forming a posse to kill the monster. It's just that the monster is an entire state mm-hmm. and the, the posse is very small and very outmatched. And some of them don't even have any dialogue. And that, I kind of love that too. Like, I mean, I know that he wanted to cast Adam Sandler as the bear Jew, the role that Eli Roth plays. And I could see it. Mm-hmm. Right after Punch Drunk Love, you could see it. But by the same token, Adam Sandler is too big. Like he would pull focus in every scene. You'd be wondering, it's like me knowing who Sam Levine is from Freaks and Geeks. It's like, is that Sam Levine? Over and over and over again. Or BJ Novak. They're just, they're background players. And Novak just looks terrified the whole time. I don't think he has any dialogue, but watching it on repeat, it's like, oh yeah, that's the guy who will then become a really interesting filmmaker in his own right. What the hell is he doing here? Yeah. I, I would I would serve sandwiches to be in in some movies. So I'm like, yeah, I, <laughs> don't give me lines. Plus, the the characters who have no lines, you're just like, I get to just show up and watch people work. Just sign me up. Or like, oh man, I play the characters in a coma in the bed, and I'm just getting paid to nap. Yes, I will <laughs> take that job. Yeah, it's true. I mean, there is so much to do as an actor, even when you don't have lines, but it just, it, it made me wonder if they had monologues too, if they had a moment where they just got to be a character rather than part of the ensemble. But of course, in the movies that Tarantino is riffing on, there were lots of guys in the background. I mean, it would make sense you'd cast an actor instead of just an extra. Yeah, but I, I also am like, if, if it was me, I'm like, yeah, I'm doing this Tarantino. The, probably their agent was like, wait till you get a speaking role. And they were like, are you kidding? I, I, I can learn from Tarantino and like all these incredible. I, no, I think I'll do it. I think I'll do it and I'll swallow my pride. Yeah, I mean, it was it Sam Levine? Somebody said, I get to hold somebody down. That was his rule. Like that was like, oh, yeah, I get to hold this guy down in one scene next to Brad Pitt. I'm doing that. It's yeah. like, I totally get that. Yeah. But also I think if you're, if you want to be a filmmaker, then you, 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 you look beyond like what your ego tells you to do and you take roles that you think you can grow from. And I, I think the depth of talent on this movie and in every department, like the prosthetics were incredible. Like the special effects were incredible. Like every department you, you was so attached to the story that I feel like you couldn't but become a better filmmaker by being around everybody on that set. Yeah. Everybody in it is doing so much more than just standing around. And I I don't mean to, uh, to knock any of the, any of the, I mean, I don't want it to sound like I was being dismissive of the, of the other Mm. actors. It is just such a, big project with so many we haven't even mentioned diane kruger who has so much fun doing what she does i think you can really tell that's like she sort of gets the 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 larger texture of the film and the the slight satirical edge how this isn't real long before it reveals itself as as a complete fantasy she's i mean i think she just watched a lot of those movies she's she knows what she's supposed to do i read her as being it's just such a great, such a great actress um, I, I, that she was able to like 
blend seamlessly into this world of espionage because she was just like, I will be whatever you need me to be. And then the moment, the moment she realizes it's over in the movie theater, like the way she just completely changes demeanor. Yeah. Um, I just, it makes you just admire the strength and intelligence of that character who, you know, even that moment where she's like, well, we can't leave because you met me here at the bar and they're going to know something's up if we don't have a drink. So, and just the, her delivery of it is she's just so, I, I imagine so smart as an, as an, a person in real life because she, um, she just understood exactly what that character needed to be. But then when the character didn't need to be that anymore, she dropped it like a bad habit and it was so beautiful to watch. Yeah. It's great because it just gives that extra dimension of a life. Like you can believe that this person was everything that they're supposed to be that all the stuff that we're told she is, you buy it because there it is. Like she's living all of these dimensions for three seconds. That moment where she kisses the napkin to give it to the soldiers. Man, I don't know why that, that was just so, I mean, and, and you realize the significance after, which is like as a clue, but like in that moment, it was, it was just such a movie star of that era thing to do. Yeah. And uh, I just, it just fit so beautifully. It was such a great device to get that clue left behind. Yeah. And it feels like something, it feels like a glamour shot from a movie, not from something historical, right? Like it's the sort of thing you'd see in a newsreel, which also bolsters the reality that we're watching strangely. Like, cause you know, we don't remember history. We remember the movies that we've seen about history. So it's like Babylon is an answer film to singing in the rain, but singing in the rain was actually a goof on the 1920s. It wasn't supposed to be a documentary. The realism is like completely out the window, mm-hmm. but he's just, Tarantino brings that extra level, that meta texture with him, I think, everywhere he goes. And so you can't help it. Like the movie's not about what it's about. It's about his memories of the movies about it. Right. And I think that's why the characters who don't have lines feel so, it feels like they've spoken the whole time because he clearly doesn't take any piece of his sets for granted. He's like every single thing, person, whatever matters equally. And so, and I think when you feel that as a performer, it really like gives you so much to offer beyond words and, and you can really feel it in all the performances. Yeah. I'm trying to figure out how to transition to the end of sex here because it's, (laughs) I'm supposed to ask about that. And in relation to the closing question on the podcast is always, you know, like, is there anything of this movie that you've used in your own work? Definitely not in the end of sex. Uh, Although your character does have a whole life that we never see. So maybe that kind of lines up. But is there something from Inglorious Bastards that you've lifted or borrowed or outright stolen elsewhere in your? Yes. The moment that Mélanie Laurent, what's her name? Shoshana, um, releases that gasp of breath after um in the restaurant after the strudel when landa leaves and she's Mm -hmm. like and she just like all that pent-up anxiety comes out um there was a movie called i don't know if it's still in the movie i just remember on the day blatantly stealing that but i think it worked it felt right um 
this movie called Edwin Boyd, where I um, am sitting on a bed and the man I love goes and he's going to go rob a bank and I'm trying to get him to stop and he won't. And then he leaves and I'm just like, um, that comes from that moment. Huh. I don't know if I, I mean, I've seen the film. I don't remember it, but that doesn't mean that it's not there. It might not be there, honestly. And it, it was literally just, I, uh, why would, I, I hope nobody would notice because that means I didn't do a good job of like see, weaving it in there. But yes, I absolutely stole that movie for that moment for that movie. That's amazing. Yeah. Okay. So we'll, we will talk about the end of sex for a second because I want people to go see it. Um, it's a kind Warby. of ent- yeah. How would you how would you characterize it? It's an anti romantic comedy. Against, it's a war against. Uh, they're fighting the invasion of a lack of coitus in their lives, and their weapon is uh, me. <laughs> which no one sees coming which no one sees coming oh wait now that sounds dirty sorry that's right because i, I made it sound dirty with the way i repeated it and i'm uh, sorry no no i set up i laid a trap somehow uh, but it is like it is kind of wonderful to see a movie about people who have to find their way back to each other mm-hmm. um through the most ridiculous challenges they can set mm-hmm. and and the fact that jonas Trinick and emily hampshire are both so good at being uncomfortable in their own skins. Like I, I, I was trying to explain it to somebody in September when it played the festival. It's like it's about two people trying to fall in love again, but it's also about two actors desperately trying to pretend to be normal people because mm. they're not. And there's just all this stuff, all this anxiety, all this nervousness, all this weird energy flying around. And then when your character shows up and you're not trying to hide the weird energy that she has, it just, it's this great, it's like watching plates start spinning in opposite <laughs> directions. Well, that's an interesting analogy. I was trying to figure it out. It's not a romantic triangle exactly. No. But it is about someone trying to force her way into a relationship, like to create a relationship with somebody against yeah, that person's I, will. Well, Wendy is, is just, she truly believes that what she wants to believe which is that Emily's character is not in the right relationship for her. And Wendy, for context, was in a relationship that wasn't right for her. So I think she is projecting a little bit. But then she's also, she also projects, like if she, I don't think she has much clarity. (laughs) Um, I think when she feels something, she assumes other people feel it exactly the same way. And, um, and that's kind of what I love about her because I, I, I've seen that happen so many times, you know, and it's like, oh no, I was just being nice. Like, what do you, it's, I'm sorry. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a really, uh, I think it's a relatable movie, even if people don't necessarily go to the extremes that they go to. Um, but also is they go to those extremes because they are not going to give up this relationship that easily. Whereas I think a lot of people just are like, Oh, you know what? The magic isn't there. I have to move on. And um, sometimes the magic just changed, you know, and you just have to um, see the, the new magic that's there instead of the more obvious one that you started with. Yeah. I mean, people, change as they get older. And if you stay together, you change together. 
ideally. Yeah. And if you change differently, then you figure out how that works. I mean, I'm speaking as the most boring person in the world. Kate and I have been together for, Jesus, 21 years. Mm-hmm. Next month is our 19th wedding anniversary. Wow. I think. And yeah, it's it's weird, but it's nice Like to just think about that level of time and how much of my life I've spent with this person and how we've seen each other at our best and our worst and all the, all the cliches, but they're cliches for a reason, right? Like you, you accept start. each other. You find someone who accepts you as you are, and that's really rare. It's really hard to find. I've been with my husband for 24 years. Oh. I mean, we haven't been married that long. Um, but so it's the same boring sounding thing but like the other day I was just having a you know a meltdown about something because I was tired and you know he I'm with someone who's like yeah I'm not going to take this that seriously I don't think this is who you are whereas a lot of other people would be like she's god she's such a bitch or I don't know and he's like no she's having a moment and when you find somebody that you can trust with your moments like that you keep them my thanks to Melanie Scrofano, who you can see chasing Emily Hampshire and annoying Jonas Chernick, for reasons, in The End of Sex, which is in theaters across Canada this Friday, April 28th. Thanks also to Angie Power. She knows what she did. You can find Mel on Twitter at Melanie Scrofano, all one word, and you can find Inglorious Bastards on 4K, Blu-ray, and DVD from Universal Studios Home Entertainment. It's also streaming on Crave in Canada and DirecTV and Sling in the US, and available to rent or buy on various VOD platforms. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast there at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. The first year of the show is still available for just 20 bucks at payhip.com slash Semcast. That's the first 52 episodes of Someone Else's Movie, 44 of which aren't currently available anywhere else. And check out my newsletter, Shiny Things, at shiny-things.ghost.io. I think you'll enjoy it. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you like it or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been listening. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe. Watch movies. Wear a mask if you go out. Get your booster when you can. I'll see you next week.